Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about the people involved in our public conversations, what they hold sacred, and what they've learned about dealing with difference. Every episode, I speak to someone with some kind of public voice, from novelists to journalists, archbishops to artists, politicians to philosophers, and ask them about the ideas that have shaped them with the aim of helping us really understand where people are coming from, even if we disagree with them. In this episode, you'll hear a conversation I had with Beth O'Leary. Beth is a novelist and the author of Waterstone's book of the year, The Flat Share. She studied English at Oxford and worked in publishing before leaving to write full time. Her next novel out in April is called The Switch. We spoke about which novels and which writers we take seriously and why, the experience of suddenly having a public voice and the power of fiction to make us feel better. I hope you enjoy listening. Beth, you've had a bit of warning of my big, hairy, scary question uh, that really I am thinking about moving to the end of the podcast to give people a bit of time to warm up to. But I'm going to ask you uh, to interpret as you wish and uh, tell me what you think you hold sacred or what your sacred values are. I, I love this question and I love that you start with it because it means that you're immediately in. There's like no kind of... <laughs> no small yeah, talk, exactly, no chat. Into the deep stuff. Um, I, yeah, I found it a really fascinating question. And I think I kind of came to the conclusion that I think my sacred value would be love, I would say. And kind of within that sort of kindness and empathy is sort of building blocks of that. And I think I the way I've interpreted that is essentially that those are things that if I try and make my choices and decisions in life based in those values, then I hope I will move through life in the sort of best way I can. Um, I also, I found the word sacred so interesting to think about because it is a word that we very rarely use in a non-religious way. And I was actually thinking about how many words we, things like divine or um, like blissful have really become words that we just used to mean like, you know, quite nice. Yes, exactly. Um, But that word has managed to kind of retain its yeah sort of it's a big word that and I kind of I think that's again why I settled on love because I think it is as a non-religious person for me it is the closest that I get to experiencing what I would think of as sacredness that feeling of loving someone or something I'll ask you a bit more concretely about your childhood in a minute but do you have any instinct as to why I have a kind of working hypothesis that people's values or maybe temperamental the more scientific way would be to say genetic, who knows, but um, but really formed by their story really and where they've come from. Yeah, um, I know what you mean. And I, I think a lot about that, how my kind of childhood and, and how I grew up and, and actually and, and why when I was thinking about that sacred value, like where did that come from? And um, I grew up in a very big family. I'm in a, a big blended family, essentially. I, I'm one of six kids um, and growing up, we fostered as well. So there were often two extra kids at home. Um, you know, often people weren't all there at the same time. Um, I'm the youngest, so lots of people went to uni, but it was a big, noisy, chaotic, loving madhouse, basically. And um, I think that has probably shaped my view of the importance of love and how it can be a incredibly strong bond that's above things like whether someone is your, your full sibling for instance like all my siblings are technically my half siblings but they aren't to me I find that I find it odd describing them as half siblings if that makes sense yeah um and yeah we we I think part of the what made me a, a reader is um was being an introvert in a house like that because I I used to I think use 
books as a way to kind of create space for myself and find sanctuary and escape from all the noise. Yeah. And what, were there any other ideas kind of in the air? I mean, uh, are your family readers and writers, do you come from a kind of literary family or uh, were there politics around? Draw out some of those threads for me. Yeah. So um, my, were my parents big readers? My dad um, was always a reader, but he, when I was a young child, he, he worked in London and would, had so little free time. Um, although actually a very formative memory for me is he, if he would get back in time for my bedtime, um, the first thing he'd always do is get out of his suits and then he'd come into and sit next to me on the bed. And I remember his, his, I have a really strong visual image of him crossing his feet at the end of the bed with his Birkenstock, like, you know, sandals on um, and opening a book and reading with me. So um books were definitely always an important part of my childhood. And I was so lucky to be in a house where there were books around. Um, and, uh, and yeah, they, but in terms of, I'm the only one of my siblings who kind of went down the artsy literary route. We have lots more kind of mathematicians and scientists and, mm. um, and yeah. And in terms of politics, we were, we were definitely, I was definitely raised in a sort of very left-wing family, but, and this has kind of been an interesting thing to reflect on whilst I was thinking about this was, Actually, we weren't a family that kind of had big political conversations around the table. We weren't, even though we were a big noisy family, there, there were never like loud debates. We didn't really talk about those things. And actually, I think my parents sort of instilled in me this sense that people have a right to their own views and a right to keep those things private almost. And and that, that it's not something that you necessarily, we're definitely not combative or however you'd say that. Um, and And that's, I mean, so now, for instance, not all my siblings have the same political views. And and I, th- I think that's interesting because it's sort of created a, by, oddly, by not having kind of debates about it, it kind of allowed for more difference, maybe. Mm, it kind of normalises the fact that you don't have to agree. Yes, exactly. But then, yeah, at the same time, you're not vocalising the disagreement. So is that problematic too? I yeah. don't know. Um, when did you start writing? Oh, I've always written. Um I found the other day when we were moving house, some old stories that I'd written on, you know, scrap paper, like my mum had been printing things out for work and I'd um, written on uh, written on the back of these old news articles, these terrible uh, stories about fairies. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's something I'd always done. I, I, the only time I really stopped writing was when I was at university. That was when I wrote less, mm-hmm. the least in my life. Um, and coming back to it was such a joy. Like I felt like it was my creativity being freed again why do you think you, you were studying English at Oxford it feels like a place that might be full of inspiration what did you think was going on there yeah it's a really good question I think a lot of the part of my mind that is used for writing was being used up I guess um and I was maybe I was just using that time to absorb you know I did so much reading in that time and and maybe there's only so much story you can hold in your head although I say that and sometimes I have a day where I think all I have done today and this is a joyous thing and I feel so lucky to be able to do it but I sometimes think all I've done is I've read someone's story and I've then watched someone's story on the tv and then I've written a story I've literally spent the whole day in fiction yeah <laughs> everything I've in done has been world. made up <laughs> yeah it's a peculiar experience yeah and talk to me about um the literary canon that you get taught at Oxford because when we talk about public conversations or public debates, I think our minds often go to kind of newspapers or politicians or, you know, that, that kind of prose form, um, 
immediate current affairs Mm. style. But my sense is that the conversation that we're having as a society happens as much through story and, and which stories we see as kind of legitimate and which stories we profile and which ones we don't as through those kind of current affairs things. So what was the kind of curriculum like? What were you studying when you were thrown? Yeah, it was um, a lot of very old books, which, you know, I, I kind of, I don't know how I feel about that. In in some ways, I I think you tend to do English because you love reading and then but I don't, I mean, it certainly wasn't my experience that I loved reading really old stuff. <laughs> like I didn't really know that that's, you know, I, I didn't know about that. So it's not quite what you think it is, I think, yeah. or at least my experience of it wasn't. Um, but you, you know, you do learn. I mean, one, it's, it's a fascinating thing that, that so many of the stories we tell have been told, you know, before. I had the same experience studying English that I felt like there was a implicit correlation between your desire to read kind of 18th century and earlier fiction and intelligence, whereas mm. I felt very motivated by post-colonial literature, yeah, by 20th yeah. century literature, um, because I was studying history as well and that sense of the kind of aliveness mm, of the context. But it took quite a while for me to stop feeling like, well, if I was really smart, mm, then I would, I would love Beowulf. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would be really yeah. early English or I would be, you know, deeply in my Milton. Yes. That's that's what real lovers of English yeah. literature read. And and actually, I've just thought what I was going to say, which was that, um, you know, it's hard to remember that actually Dickens and writers like that who who we now or Austin writers that we now treat as canon how they were talked about at the time was so different and you know the way I mean I used to find it so funny when you're reading something like you know Clarissa like Samuel Richardson an enormous novel um and definitely something that only people who are not faint of heart will tackle <laughs> um and in, you know those sorts of novels talk about novels as as dangerous things for young women to be reading. Yes. Um, and now... Definite kind of subversive popular culture. Oh, yeah. Like, y- yeah, exactly. Low culture, you know, in that kind of judgmental, snobbish way that I will say people still sometimes talk about romance novels in that way. Yeah. And um, and now with hindsight, we look back at those, you know, as, as great. So yeah. it just shows how wrong we often are. <laughs> the categories we put things in. Yes, exactly. Um, so... You uh, left Oxford and went to work straight in publishing. Is that right? Yeah. So I, I initially worked for an academic publisher, um, an assistant level, and kind of doing all the um, managing lots and lots of books and that sort of thing. Um, and then I moved across into children's publishing. Um, I was in a sort of slightly peculiar corner of children's publishing, which is licensing. So it's things like. Um, you know, something that was on the TV like Peppa Pig or In the Night Garden. And then if you go into a shop, you can find books that are based on that. So often they were activity books or like little short stories. Um, And it was a really, I mean, it was a fascinating place to work. It was right on the edge of kind of a very, um, you know, publishing is a very uh, sort of creative, literary, buzzy environment. And then on the other side of it, I was kind of on the edge of like the toy industry, I worked with a lot of toy companies or the entertainment industry, um, which is such a different culture. It's really interesting. I used to go and, and have meetings quite often at, at Toy Fair, which is literally just a big um, fair about toys, but like not for kids, for businessmen. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, it's really bizarre. And they have these, um, they have these children's characters, you know, like the big dress up ones where 
you're kind of like, so they'll have Peppa Pig wandering around like in, in this so giant life size suit whilst these like people in suits are talking about like Q1 revenue. And you sort of think this is so strange, this world that's a combination of, you realise how commercial these things are really. And I think, you know, that's a big part of what working in publishing taught me is is the commercial side of, of yeah. the literary world. Yeah, it it was an interesting thing because obviously the flat share, this, I what. I feel it's terribly patronising the thing about all first novels are autobiographical but I do feel like most first novels have some autobiography in them and that yours clearly has you know the main character working in another kind of slightly odd subset of the publishing industry which yeah. is crafts and hobbies publishing which yes. I just loved oh thank you that was fun it yeah. was fun yeah <laughs> um, but uh, that sense of actually the pa- the power dynamics at play in publishing and the way it acts as a gatekeeper for whose voices mm. are um profiled in public whose stories we we allow ourselves to be formed and I think like many I was kind of naive about it's, it's quite a kind of you know a high calling <laughs> of all the yeah. all of these earnest book lovers suddenly get to do it for a living and the reality is m- much more constrained by market forces and taste and and mm. profile how have you navigated having worked in it and now um you know working with publishers as a writer how do you kind of f- what do you feel about the publishing industry? Yeah. The thing that's been most striking and interesting on that for me has been the difference between writing a first book and writing a second book under contract. Right. So I sold, when we sold the flat share, it, it sold um, in a two book deal, which meant that I was being, you I had already been it. paid <laughs> to write a second book. Um, and it was such a different experience. And I was so much more aware of having essentially kind of being employed to do this. And it, is a creative thing like I don't it's difficult to talk about creativity without sounding really wanky yes I, am I allowed to say wanky I was gonna say something Go, similar it's, to wanky. it's fine I think I think <laughs> listeners will manage <laughs> um and but the truth is I found that when I was thinking about um things like is this what my publisher wants what will the sales team say you know how are they going to publicize this all of those things were just like putting a stopper on my ability to do it. And it was a weird sort of, I had to do this kind of tricking myself eventually of just saying, I'm going to pretend all of that's not there. And yeah. even to the point where, you know, the flat show was getting this incredible publicity and it was a total dream. But that was, I, in the end, I said to my publicist, like, can you stop sending me the articles that are reviewing it? Because as much as it's, huge it's wonderful to see... I'm just like bricking it that I'm not going to be able to do this again. And every time, you know, it, it, it's terrible how that gets in your head. But but also it had made me really, it just made me really aware of a lot of, of, of a readership that I didn't want to let down. And that felt, yeah, like a, like a pressure. And there's nothing more, um, or nothing less conducive to creativity than pressure for me. I know not all writers work that way. Some people love a deadline, which I just find baffling yeah, yeah. <laughs> i wish i loved a deadline so tell me about the genesis of the flat share and uh i have read it and loved it and it's about oh, these uh, two people who um because of the kind of constraints of the london property market end up sharing a flat and <laughs> sleeping on see when i first came to the book the, my key question was wait they're sharing a bed but they've never met what happens to the sheets and oh as, you'd be amazed how many people ask know, me about the sheets i know and as it turns <laughs> yeah. out they just one sleeps on the left hand side of the bed and one sleeps on the right hand side of the bed and it all seems to work but he does night shifts and she does day shifts and they never meet and that is a way of living in london cheaply and you know romance blossoms and there's uh, also in uh 
and not also because it's not this is this is and we'll get on to this i don't think that these things are tangential to the romance there is a plot about wrongful imprisonment and access to justice and uh coercive control and emotional abuse all threaded through there um go read it it's great um but where did it kind of was it obvious that that kind of book was what you'd always wanted to write or did it did working in publishing influence it how much were those kind of i guess genre uh concepts that are more or less helpful framing it or was it just this is my voice this is the story i want to tell that's a really good question and and actually people i think it's easy to look back and kind of impose a um a story on how you did yes for instance <laughs> yes <laughs> seems like i'm always doing that anyway um on on how these things happen and kind of go oh i knew like i knew this was going to be big but i I, and, and and also to think I knew this was good, like to think, you know, I knew this was the one because I'd written and finished novels before and tried to get an agent How many? and got nowhere. Four novels I finished, countless unfinished novels. I've been trying to get an agent since I was I feel like that would be so 17. encouraging for people. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I don't know a writer who doesn't have that story. There's You get the occasional person who has, has somehow managed to kind of learn how to do it on the fly like the first go and that's um but I'm sure they have struggles further down the line there's no kind of easy writing journey I don't think um but yes the I I don't think I was really aware of um I I was writing it at the time when if you think about it, it would have been yeah I guess things like Gone Girl and you know the the big books were all quite dark yeah um and I remember thinking when I was like sending it out to agents and so so hoping that it might get published one day thinking no one really wants books like this right now um and thinking i haven't really done a commercially sensible thing here have i but oh well um it was a story i wanted to write and i wanted to write something happy and in the same way that i you know i was writing on my commute to and from work um and in the same way that i might have read a book in that time to cheer me up and relax i think i was almost writing that book for myself um and I think that has been part of where I got really lucky is I feel like there were a lot of other people who at that particular time were like, Do you know what? I just want to read something where people are nice <laughs> and good stuff happens. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe we were ready. We were ready. Yeah. Um, and in, in terms of the source, the kind of root of the idea, it, it sort of um, started actually in kind of my own living situation. You're right. There's always a little autobiography, although I find it fascinating how interested people are in that. And and I notice it in myself now, now that I'm on the other side of it as a writer. And I'm thinking, why are people always expecting me to be Tiffy, my main character? Why are they always saying, you know, oh, are you just like her? And yeah. why don't, why haven't you got, you know, crazy yeah, clothes on? Yeah, or... you know? And, um, and then I notice that I do it all the time when I'm reading other people's books. I, I sort of think, oh, I wonder if this is them. So I don't know, it's just some kind of human impulse, I think. Um, but yes, I was living, I just moved in with my boyfriend who was a junior doctor. So he worked lots of night shifts and we would go days on end where we weren't in at home at the same time and I was complaining to a friend about it and just sort of saying I really miss him and it's really rubbish we've moved in together but we hardly see each other and uh, and she said oh he could rent his room out if he was um single uh and and uh like because he's only in there you know out, out the other hours when the other person would be home and I was like that is a really good idea for a book and it immediately lends itself to two two voices because you've got night and day and you've got um and I loved this idea of like, what could you learn about somebody from the traces that they leave behind 
because I, I would, I would learn so much about Sam's day just from little things like how many coffee mugs he'd left by the sink. I'd think, oh, he had to have two coffees this morning. Like he must've been really tired or tonight actually. Yeah. Um, and, and all those little things. There's and a I, real intimacy in it. Exactly. Yeah, there is. And there's an intimacy in living with somebody and you, you learn so much about someone when you live with them that you, even if you're really close friends before you don't know. So that was kind of my way in. Um, you, it's really helpful to hear about the kind of four novels previously because I think coming coming to reading your book and then coming and reading a bit about you, it sort of sounds like you burst onto the scene with <laughs> yeah. this incredibly successful first book, and with that comes a public voice and people wanting to know about you and having to do lots of this promotion. How has that been for you? How do you can kind of conceive of the responsibility having that voice, both in the numbers of people reading your books, but also people just being interested in you? It's been probably the hardest thing to figure out. And I think I'm still figuring it out. Like I um, am a very naturally private person who, and it's funny because writing fiction is so exposing. I have had so many moments in this last sort of year where I've been like, what am I doing? I'm so badly suited to this. (laughs) You know, I'm so putting myself out there by doing this and I am not a person who is comfortable doing that. And um, I think part of the problem was I never, ever imagined this many people would ever read something I wrote. Um, You know, it's sold in 33 languages. There are people all around the world who contact me about the book and it's huge. I mean, it's a really incredible experience. It's often so humbling. And and the moments when I'm like, this is why I'm doing this are the moments when, in fact, I had one of these moments a few days ago where where I got a message from a reader who just said, um, I'm in a really bad place mental health wise and your book made me smile for the first time in a really long time and I just felt this you know when you're like this is why I am doing this and why I do what I do I love that I have made you feel better and that when I'm thinking why on earth have I done this (laughs) I think it's important to come back to those those things it sounds like vocation yeah it feels that and I think I've always it's been a dream like I, I I often liken it to kind of becoming a professional footballer or you know like a West End star for me like it's a total dream. And I think that that has brought a lot of pressure with it too, because, um, and especially in terms of the public profile thing, like I'm so um, aware that I don't want to screw it up because I'm like, this is such an incredible opportunity and such a dream. And I, I want to do it well. Um, And I, I kind of, and you know, with that comes, you know, responsibility to kind of create a brand for yourself, which is a, I mean, what a weird thing to have to just suddenly start doing. <laughs> yeah, you've got, it's not something I think that has long heritage in the British psyche, self-promotion. No, and so it's not Now it's suddenly the norm in certain industries. Yeah. It's quite an odd. It is. and But it, in some ways you can see, I mean, it's quite an interesting question to ask yourself, what is my brand? It's not that different from asking what are my sacred values? <laughs> Who am I? What do I want to present? Exactly. It's like, what what is what do I want people to think, oh yeah, I'm really in the mood for a Beth O'Leary novel. What do I want them to reach, what be feeling? And what are they, what are they looking for me to give them? Yeah. Um, it's a quite interesting question to ask yourself. Do you know what the answer to that is? Oh, I would say, I would hope something uplifting. I like, I, and I think the fact that the thing that really, I really responded to was making someone feel better. Mm. I really like the idea. And I think that's partly because fiction has done that so often for me in my life is, you know, it's incredible that a book can have that power to genuinely take you out of a situation and make you feel better. Um, even if that's just by making you step away from it for a moment and step into another world. Um, 
And I think I write, I would say I kind of write uh, stories that are true to life, but hopeful. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Do you, did you think that when you when you read the flat share? Yeah, I. Um, it really got me thinking because I feel like you're you're primed as a reader, don't you, to expect certain things from covers and blurbs and the way things are positioned. And uh, reading your book, and I started listening to a podcast called Hot and Bothered, which is by. Um, a woman called Vanessa Zoltan, who also does a podcast about Harry Potter that I like a lot. Harry Potter as a sacred text. This is about reading romance novels as a sacred text. And I uh, have always read Georgette Heyer as my like downtime yes. Regency romance novels, mainly because I love the language. I love the way she gives you this Regency vocabulary, which might have been completely made up, but is now deeply ingrained in my psyche of being, don't be missish. Oh yes, what a great yeah. word. I need to bring back missish. <laughs> so good. Um, but other than that, like I remember borrowing some meals and boons from my mum when I was about 13 and that's mm. my only other engagement with romance novels and uh, as as the very specific genre. So that's got me thinking about what do we mean by that and what's the difference between a romance novel and a novel that has romance in it or has a love story and what what is this space for kind of pop, popular, you know, the distinction between popular fiction and literary fiction and between what stories are aimed at women mm. uh, and what, what we attach to that. So I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on that because my, my, my sense, because people keep comparing you to Marion Keys and mm-hmm. Sophie Kinsella and these people who I love and have often been kind of angry that, again, Marion Keys, and if, unless you read Marion Keys, you don't know that like her first three books are all about addiction. Yes. <laughs> and uh, the that, fact that she's referred to as a sort of chiclet writer yeah. when you've got to say that I, I have to believe I think if a man had written those books yeah. we wouldn't talk about them As in the way that we do what chaplet I don't know, you know. <laughs> chaplet I quite like it yeah <laughs> but they, but they, the fact that there is no time for that is yeah. telling in itself isn't it yeah it is I mean you know it when, when you see it and it's usually like a, a man fighting terrorists or a spy or but <laughs> help me understand how do these distinctions <laughs> emerge and how do you navigate them oh navigating them is tricky and actually even just in terms of how I talk about my own writing it's tricky because um I would probably I, I think in a in a publishing house they would probably say or I, they would probably say that I write commercial women's fiction would probably be the term and or- is that because so-called literary fiction doesn't make money <laughs> oh good question books that make money <laughs> like- that probably is what commercial means yeah. commercial probably means um and it probably also means we can we'll shift quite a lot of them yeah. and they'll probably be quite cheap. <laughs> More people will read them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but women's fiction is a really interesting one. I actually think I prefer the phrase chiclet to the phrase women's fiction because at least chiclet kind of has a little sense of humour in itself. And women's fiction is so kind of like, Sounds oh, like we've women's thought studies. about it and we've realised that chiclet is offensive. So we've decided to call it women's fiction. And they're like, oh, this just, this is even worse. That was the problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I usually say, I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard the term uplit. No. This is a phrase that publishing has sort of created um, and people have really mixed feelings about it. Some people are like, oh, it's not a new thing. You know, there's been uplifting novels which involve, you know, a sense of community and love for so long and why are we pretending like it's something new? Um, but I quite like it because I think it's renaming a lot of fiction that has often been given names that are very gendered. And what I like about Uplit is that like the word thriller or horror, it tells you what you're going to feel, not who you are as a reader picking it up. So it doesn't say, men, you can't read this book. 
it's not for you. Yeah. It says, if you want to feel uplifted at the end of this novel, then this book might be for you, which I, so I, I like that, but no one else really says it yet. <laughs> so I'm well, trying to bring we're it We're going to start the trend <laughs> and it's going to go viral. <laughs> yes. Because it was used on The Secret. <laughs> Is that how this works? Is that how one goes viral? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe this time. <laughs> Uplit. Okay. That's helpful for me. Because that's another thing. I'm like, how, what, what is it? And I really don't think it's just the quality of the prose. Like, what is it that when a book lands on someone's desk, they go, this goes in the serious fiction pile and this goes in the commercial fiction pile. And what's funny is more people read the commercial fiction pile, but in terms of the public conversation, Mm. the ones that get reviewed and talked about and get on Radio 4 are in the serious fiction pile. So they have kind of disproportionate influence on what forms us, or maybe they don't, but they just are perceived to be. So there's something about gender that we've talked about that if it is perceived to be the kind of thing women are interested in, then maybe it's not serious fiction. Mm. But also I think you're right. There's something about darkness and light. Yes. About resolution. I totally agree with that. And I often get the comment that, um, I'm trying to say this without giving any any spoilers about the book, but um, people often talk about novels being predictable when you know that they're going to end happily. And that's something that's often said about romance novels because you know it's not going to end with the hero dying and the heroine still being single. (laughs) Or worse, Um, still being single. Yes. Oh my God, can you imagine anything worse than still being single? Um, Yeah. And and I find that really interesting. And actually, a lot of the time when I'm asked about the flat share, people will say, yeah, you know, it it is a romantic comedy and it's a really light, funny read, but actually there are also some really serious themes in this book and people say it um the tone of surprise yes with a tone of surprise but also with like do you know what it's actually quite good in that sort of way <laughs> um and, and i find it so interesting that people are a lot more comfortable thinking that a book is good if it's got some darkness in it yeah um and what does that i mean what does that say about us can't yeah. we and, and i always think it's interesting as well people i think take a um, a sad ending more seriously than they take a happy ending. Yeah. But really, everybody in life has. I don't think it's any less um, true to life to to end a story happily. You're just cutting that person's life off at a different moment. In we all have ups and downs, right? I could have yeah. the Flatshare starts at a real down for the for the for say for Tiffy. Um, I could have written a novel that ended there, and then it, <laughs> I don't know. Would that have been literary fiction? Because. <laughs> Yeah, it didn't have a nice resolution. Uh, it is. I find it fascinating what we what we call literary fiction, um, and I think we're having more and more conversation about yeah. it and kind of saying, "Is it about negativity bias?" I think there's also so there's a kind of parallel conversation going in my mind that I that I talked to Rich and Lydia Ayoade about and a couple of other people about uh, so called religious art, and there is something in particular forms of Christian novels or Christian music, uh, which are the fields I know best, that are easily written off as kind of kitsch because they they can feel a bit primary colours. You know, they kind of, mm. they like not Marilyn Robinson or, you know, Graham Greene or Dostoevsky or any of the, any of the greats, but you're kind of standard that there's something in too much focus on the good and the beautiful and the true, which is in- challenging for me theologically, given that the New Testament says whatever is good and whatever is lovely, whatever is noble, whatever is praiseworthy, think about these things. That in art, at least, rings slightly untrue. And 
but the opposite, I think, seems this sense of like, oh, oh, art is about suffering. Yeah, <laughs> looking, looking the depths of the world in the face, and well, and it should be hard. We, I think, I, I often noticed this the other day. I was actually, um, there's very few Sophie Kinsella novels that I've not read, but there were not. two, and I was trying to work out which one to read next to treat myself. And I, I never look at my own reviews on Goodreads. Those aren't for me. Those are for readers. Um, and all they do is scramble my head um but i looked at a few of hers and i was really struck by how um even readers who love her books will will dismiss the book and themselves for liking do you know what i mean so they'll say things like oh obviously you know there's not much substance to it but it's a lovely read and i flew through it and why are you doing that because i think we've got this this and perhaps it's because of the way we're taught about literature at school or something but we feel that in order for reading to be valuable, it has to be really hard. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's 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 not that same value in reading that's purely pleasurable. Yeah, yeah, and that the desire for resolution is somehow shameful. Yes. Oh, how interesting! Like we've, and um, but that's so human, isn't it? And yeah. we do it elsewhere. You know, we were always looking for the search for truth. Is yeah. <laughs> you know, and and, and it like, is, and I do think. Forgive me, this is kind of my particular nerdery, but sometimes I feel like in my conversations with uh, more kind of campaigny atheists, there is a sense in which, because I do have this sense of kind of a telos of a of a being part of a bigger story, which is deeply broken and unresolved right now, but is moving towards some kind of resolution, that 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 in itself is is kind of shameful or childish or. You know, that's a sense of the the deep logic of the universe is narrative, and that good narrative resolves yeah. is is naive. Or, and I wonder if it's that temperamental thing of like we are brave enough to stare into the existential abyss of suffering, mm. and that's what real courage is. And for you, kind of poor, weak minded Christian slash commercial fiction lovers, yeah, <laughs> bless you, pat on the head. <laughs> But we're always looking, aren't we, for cause and effect? And it's really, you know, narrative is just kind of lots of that, really, of of why did this happen? And then, oh, finding out why. And maybe um, even though we're always seeking that, finding it, we feel like we're cheating somehow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It should be more difficult than this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, space for joy. That feels like good to me. Um, so what the, the the big themes that people find anomalous in your, yes. in your novel, um, how, tell me about them because they're, again, I'm trying to avoid spoilers, but there is an mm. obvious one about kind of uh, the justice system mm-hmm. and then another one about, um, how, how much are you happy with me saying? I think I might have already. No, I think it's fine. Okay. I, it tends, this, this gets spoiled a lot. Okay. Thank you for checking though. Yeah, because it's not, it's actually not, it's not that obvious, mm. um, but you know, questions about what's an appropriate emotional relationship. Yeah. Um, did you think? Is it obviously started with this? I want to write about this living situation, and then I imagine the characters were. Did you, were these issues that were on your mind that you wanted to incorporate? And actually wanted to say something about them in public. You wanted the reader to go away thinking something about these things in that sense of like responsibility to pass on a message or did they kind of emerge naturally out of the the world and the ecosystem and the fact that actually some in some of them you're making quite strong political points kind of very well and carefully and appropriately in the narrative sense not didactically um was that kind of a side effect that's a really good question and for me it was mass it was hugely the second so Mm -hmm. i um all of those kind of darker threads let's say to the novel 
worked their way in as I got to know the characters. And I think, again, that's part of wanting to write fiction that feels true to life. And for me, people, these were two people coming to falling in love in their late 20s. And I don't know anybody who's not got past that they're bringing and a bruised heart by that point in their life. And, you know, whether that's past relationships that have left you with that or family troubles or whatever it might be that's pulling you, kind of making that harder for you. Um, it just felt true to me that that there would be depth to that. And and it's it's interesting now that I'm so I've just I've finished my second book and that comes out in April and I've I'm working at the moment on my third. And it's it's fascinating to watch my process because when I when I went into writing the second one, I thought I've got a kind of concept a little bit like that, two people sharing a bed. I had this idea of a grandmother and a granddaughter swapping lives. And I talked to my publishers about it and they were kind of like, yeah, it sounds great. Where's that depth that we had in the flat share? And I I thought, oh, I don't, I don't know. And and actually what I I've realized now yet. is that it comes and I have to just trust myself. And I'm always surprised <laughs> by what works its way in. Um and I think they are often things that I'm thinking on or or topics that you know I'm but it's it's so hard. It makes me feel like I am um, not in control of this job because because where where you know people I the question you get asked the most as a writer is where do your ideas come from mm. and it's a little embarrassing to have to say like I don't really know yeah <laughs> but it's true yeah. um, but yes I think those those darker threads really came from um, getting to know the characters and wanting to tell a story that felt realistic as well as hopeful and I worried about it quite a lot actually when I was trying to get an agent because I thought oh god I was trying to sort of you know I, I was trying to tell this really upbeat happy story and I've sort of accidentally worked in all this darker stuff and uh, is that going to really put people off like are people going to you know are, are agents going to think we're not going to be able to sell this it's not one thing or the other um but it seems to have actually been something that's a strength as it turns out we can hold complexity in our heads yay even in <laughs> well commercial done fiction <laughs> And and like I say, it's not it's not a new thing, is it? I mean, you, you talk about Marion Keys, like her novels have such um rawness and depth to them. Um and I think that often the people that are very surprised to find that in the flat share are people that just haven't haven't really read a great deal of other stuff kind of within the genre. Yeah. Um talk to me about I don't know if you've ever thought about this one. I haven't warned you, so apologies. But in terms of the role that the arts and particularly that imaginative arts kind of fiction and theatre and film can play, one of the themes we play around with is this sense of actually we are deeply different. We have deeply different sacred values. We have deeply different experiences and identities. And we see the kind of f- sparks from the friction of those rubbing up together in our in our public conversation. What role do you think the kind of work you do can and should play in helping us live together well? That's a really good question. I think can and should are very different for me there. So I would say it can do an enormous amount. I think what teaches you more empathy than a story where you are able to step into somebody else's shoes. Um, and there's a kind of magic to that for me. Like, you know, you, you're able to sort of live someone else's life almost. Um, but it becomes difficult when you start thinking about kind of what responsibility does a fiction writer have there. And I, I actually think I, I mean, I don't think I could do my job. I don't think I could write the sorts of novels I want to write if I was consciously trying to pr- sort of preach an, an, an idea. Um, but 
that said, I kind of trust that because these books are products of my brain, that my values will be in them, if that makes sense. Um, and I think it kind of almost happens at a less conscious level. And that's probably probably makes, well, for me, it seems to make for better fiction than mm. than trying to say something. Yeah. Um, that feels a lot clumsier for me than 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 finding a story and yeah um through that story kind of exploring things i think that's part of what i'm doing when i'm writing is also exploring my in my you know in my own space like and then um yeah but i think i think fiction can do a huge amount for bridging difference and kind of um getting us talking how often do you start a conversation with somebody about a book and end up talking about all kinds of stuff and disagreeing about something but in a kind of maybe a slightly safer way that does, doesn't feel confrontational because it's about something that's not real yeah um, you've got I, a bit of distance because you're talking about characters but really you're talking about yourself yeah and 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 isn't it interesting that we can feel emotions about that you can you can cry about a character dying you know even though you know they're not real um and and, and maybe at that remove, we're able to have a slightly softer conversation. I don't know. Yeah. I'm now conceiving of all the book clubs up and down the countries as a little bit like the Bible studies that are happening yeah. um, in churches. <laughs> uh, Beth O'Leary, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the Think Tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.